I can test the more interesting part of that last. <laughs> I think this is, this is perfectly interesting, uh, but uh, it does set up the, the, the additional speakers today. But surfacing local educational community practice amidst decisive models of uh, universal educational systems, and this is largely about um, uh, to a call for a special issue for uh, learning media and technology and another one that was spun off into something else, but we'll, we'll talk about our, what we've learned in those processes as well. Okay. Yeah, that's it. There we go. So just a, as, a, as a brief interruption from, from us, we both work at the Center for Research in Digital Education, which is a, a, a quite a large research group at the Murray House School of Education at the University of Edinburgh, and a research group which is concerned with all kinds of digital education issues. We have three research themes, children, children and technology, uh, digital culture, and uh, data and society, which I'll say more about later. So data and society is the research theme that I, uh, I uh, co-direct the center uh, through. And this is just a, an example of some of the projects that I work on to give you a bit of a context about me uh, looking at learning analytics and, and uh, working with students in, in, in building a, a critical awareness of learning analytics. And if anybody's interested in that, we did hold a, a digital university event last year on that subject. Looking at uh, the Internet of Things, which is a set of technologies which connect physical objects to the Internet and thinking about that in an educational sense. And I'm also currently working with, uh, maybe just give it another click, I'm also currently working with uh, Beijing Normal University on uh, a project around artificial intelligence and, and inclusion. Welcome to our other convener, Ibra. And I should also say that some of my background, which is probably more pertinent to this event, has been researching massive open online courses, which I'll say a bit more about shortly, which are, I think, a key example of how education technology is portrayed as a kind of global movement. So there's a bit of shameless promotion there. That's my idea. All right. Uh, my, uh, well, Jeremy presents, a, I think, a pretty unified uh, research agenda. Mine tends to be all over the shop. Um, it I exists largely as a almost in this third space kind of professional activity, so working within the university and working outside it, largely with NGOs and, and things of that nature, a larger development space. But the projects I work on at the University of Edinburgh, at least, uh, Near Future Teaching being the first one, which is about uh, setting the strategy of, uh, the future strategy of digital education for the university for the next 10, 20 years. So it's about uh, employing futures methods to project out what are the risks and identifying what we can do differently and uh, having a more holistic value-driven future for the university. So that's on the one end of the spectrum of what I do. Uh, the other ends of the spectrum are, are things like that in the lower left-hand corner, research around uh, development projects, emergency aftershock response, that was a GCRF bid. Uh, we work with CARA as well. We will be working with CARA, which uh, the uh, later speakers will be talking about their experiences with that, working with um, Syrian academics and uh, refugee academics in Turkey. In the upper right-hand corner, I work a lot with mobile. So there's one common theme uh, dominating how I approach research. It's largely around a mobile space. And one of those is a USAID program, uh, gender and information communication technology. It's about ensuring that women in particular are represented in these, uh, these discourses around mobile, uh, mobile learning and educational efforts around mobile technology. And towards that end, I de develop in... Uh, mobile applications towards that effect. So it's all mobile all the time. 
So I think it, it bears mentioning how we sort of approached the special issue, uh, how we came to this discussion. And this was based on, I think, a good 10, 15 years of work uh, in the now defunct organization called Aluka. It was bought by an organization called JSTOR. Uh, I worked for, for years, for years. It was in the mid-2000s, and it was largely about working with uh, universities in development context to improve their use of ICT. So that had a lot to do with, you know, these universities here, University of, uh, uh, State University of Zanzibar, uh, Cairo, uh, University of Dar es Salaam, University of Ghana, Legon, which is the last two as well. So it's working with those universities and more throughout Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia and Southeast Asia to a lesser degree, uh, working with them to improve their capacity to use ICT. And this was at the beginning when things were just starting to go online in mass, on mass. And so we ran into a lot of encounters, a lot of difficulties, and it was ultimately a flawed and failed effort, but that began my journey through this space, which the special issue picks up again. And I, I work, as I said, as a third space professional. I have my own organization called Panoply Digital, that's the PD, and we work a lot with uh, these organizations, the, the, you know, the natural characters that you might expect working in these spaces. USAID and UNESCO, GIZ, World, World Bank Group, et cetera, et cetera. World Bank Group, we should mention, has worked with the University of Edinburgh for quite some time, uh, developing open courses around development projects, uh, risk management, risk assessment, finance for development, all these different topics that might be of interest. And we've been running those for years and years. And I also work closely with the GSMA, which is the mobile, the Association of Mobile Telecoms Worldwide, very, very powerful organization that does a lot of work in mobile learning in that space. Not, this is not a big promotional effort for my company, but it just it leads into the special issue. So the P, we've, we've done this work, and specifically our focus is on women, uh, gender issues around ICT, mostly about the gender digital divide, how that manifests, what issues are affecting that, um, and what can be done. Uh, when you're working with USAID, and, and I don't want to, Jade maybe can pick up on this a little bit herself, uh, is this idea that you're, you're developing a solution to a problem that is usually a poorly defined, poorly understood problem. Uh, we don't always understand the local context in, in which these uh, situations work, and the solutions are often, if not always, deemed uh, to some degree of failure. There's a lot of money being spent on uh, solutions that don't do what they're intending to do. That's not n new news here of any sort, but that's the some of the issue we thought to address in the special issue was around that. Uh, yes, so really just to, just to clarify the kind of thing Michael was describing there, we thought it would be useful to, to, to clarify a general position, a theoretical position on, on technology that, that sort of underpins the discussion we want to have. And it's one that I, we, we hope that uh, the centre in Edinburgh in some way has a reputation for, which, which is a critical view of technology, one that doesn't uh, necessarily view it as a, as a simple or straightforward uh, solution. To, to a problem, uh, however this is the way that it, it tends to be portrayed, and to try and try and understand technology as something that's much uh, much more entangled with with context, something that's already political, already cultural, and something which isn't easily separated off from, from the social. Uh, and uh, I think that's the, the general position that, that led us to to thinking about that specifically in a, in a, in a Kind of development context, and, and Neil Selwyn's work is, was another uh, in, influence here in 
trying to understand how we might better work with and develop an understanding of technology uh, in, in, in a global sense. What Neil Selwyn talks about in his critique here is that the way the digital technology is often associated with a kind of easy flattening out of, of supposed hierarchies in higher education, of boosting of individual freedoms, a, a sort of neoliberal take there, and a reduction of centralised control. So what he's doing here, I think, is, is critiquing a, a very broad kind of ed tech discourse around how the, the technology provides an easy solution to uh, long-standing social and educational problems. So uh, as, as I mentioned previously, some of the work I've done has been on MOOCs, and I think that this is a, a good, useful initial example for that kind of high-profile discourse that we, we hear around education technology. And if you're not aware of massive open online courses, they were very prominent, certainly around 2012 and 2013, and, and very much hyped in the media as a, as a form of education technology that was going to disrupt higher education specifically and, and uh, broadcast a particular kind of education to all, all specific parts of, of the world. And what we see here are, are some examples from some of that promotion, which if one were to analyze, do a kind of visual analysis, as, I, as I've done in some of my previous work, uh, in, interpret this as uh, conveying a, a real sense of, of, of wanting to, to spread a particular kind of education across the globe and to view the MOOC, the MOOC education project as one that's global and one that's very international. So also pictures of the globe proliferating uh, amongst this kind of uh, this, this, this kind of promotion. This one is from an edX promotional video. This is from Udacity, who famously uh, some of you may know, it sort of did a U-turn from from a general education and moved towards a very very much a technology education. And this one, which is perhaps the most significant, which is a, a visualization from Coursera, who you, you might know is one of the is the, the major platform. And this is a, an early uh, visualization, <coughs> data visualization of enrollments. Uh, which is a heat map, which some of you might know show, uh, shows enrollments from particular nation states, so the darker the hue, the more enrollments from that particular nation state. And we can see from this visualization, one might read it quite problematically, is uh, demonstrating how, and the, I should say, these uh, yellow circles are the institutions providing the courses, broadcasting their education out to the sort of awaiting uh, populations in, in other parts of the world. So one might view this as quite problematically signaling how MOOCs are being broadcast from the from the European and the North American continent and the awaiting populations of the, of the other parts of the world. So there's a there's a I think a, a problematic portrayal of of, of digital technology as a, a, a global project. And this is just another example of a of a heat map visualization which accompanied most of the most of the early research in MOOCs conveying this idea that it, it is a global project. Uh, and some more of the, the promotion here, which one might interpret as a kind of flexibility of access, uh, access globally. Um, and I think what's imp important to, to clarify in, in this bit of the talk is how we might um, understand the technology as, while it's promoted to, to do this, this, this kind of work, as being grounded technically in, in a very specific kind of education. And if anybody has taken some of these MOOCs from, from the large MOOC platforms, 
you'll know that they predominantly promote the video lecture as the kind of content uh, and images of the campus as well is signaling that this education is from the prestigious uh, university and also um, including a social element which is which is usually a, a discussion forum like this one so the one example here that I think is useful to give in in this point which is about how the the actual technology of the platform structures in a particular way in which the education might unfold <coughs> if you uh, if you know a discussion forum you'll know uh, this is a, a fairly typical one from the Coursera platform that uh, provides a, a way to pin a particular post from the course instructor at the top and a, a kind of threaded discussion forum which allows the group to converse and respond to that post underneath so it, it, I, I suppose it's hopefully a very simple example of how the, the, the educational relationships and the educational space are, are, are encoded in a particular way within the platform. Mm. I think Michael will give us another example about how we might rethink that. Yeah, so yeah, how that educational relationship, how those educational relationships are constructed and how, how they might conceivably run headlong into uh, some sort of sociocultural practice that's specific to a particular location. And I'm borrowing an example here from Korea only because I lived there for a long period of time and I'm familiar with this Sunbei Hubei relationship, which is a senior-junior relationship that doesn't have a direct equivalent in um, in a Western con well, in, in the UK context or the, uh, the Western context. Uh, it's largely about the relationships of the older individual in the group to the younger people in the group, and it extends well beyond any sort of uh, familiar or any any sort of. Uh, uh, polite uh, niceties of this sort. There's, a, there's duties and relationships involved in that Sunbei, Hubei, senior, junior relationship. And that's for life. That's a lifetime relationship. So you, if you were to enter a Korean university at age 18 or 19, and uh, the seniors in your, your upperclassmen perhaps, in your department would be your Sunbei for the rest of your life, essentially. So those relationships would carry on into your employment, into your work, um, and it's, it's a guiding, formative relationship. Many countries, many locations would have, not necessarily that, but we've had their own specific instances of relationships that are, aren't always accounted for in these globalizing digital education platforms. And if they are, they're largely about workarounds and finding some other solution to get around the fact that those aren't always represented. Not necessarily explicitly, but how that relationship is enacted in that space is very, very problematic uh, in terms of, as we return to that Selwyn quote again, this flattening of hierarchies, this loosening of control, all of which works problematically in that Confucian context because it eliminates the capacity for structuring, not eliminates, but it makes it difficult to have those structured relationships in a hierarchical way. That's just one example, and I pulled an example which is something I was familiar with, but there are many, many more. And in fact, that's really the guiding question for the rest of the presentation. Something for you to think about, and we can return to in the discussion a little bit later on, is what other accounts of practice are overlooked by the design and structure of educational platforms? So are there any that are overlooked? Are there any that are privileged? Are there any that are uh, inhibited by the structure, the code, the presentation of a digital education platform? Some are, some aren't. 
that's the question you sort of think about as we go through. So, it was a long intro into the special issue call. Uh, this is, these were largely, this was distilled into a series of guiding questions. They're not really research questions. They're research questions for us, for Jeremy and I, but they sort of guided the structure of the call, which was how are local educational ideals being fostered and practiced with digital education? How are educational technologies being resisted and transformed in cultural context? Resistance is a, is a big part of this as well you'll find ways that uh, certain groups will maintain these, uh, these cultural practices and reinvent them in particular ways, largely in, a, in an era of resistance or defiance. Uh, what local learning practices, pedagogies, and systems are being largely unaccounted for in contemporary accounts of digital education? As Jeremy was talking about earlier, the Courseras, the edXs, and the Udacities of the world, how are they presenting this global digital education, and how do those local practices work with that and against it at the same time? And is a truly representative form of global education possible with technology strictly rhetorical? I don't think we'll get to the bottom of that in a special issue. So the call itself went out uh, for learning media and technology, and I have EuroDL as well here because there was a second call that we issued in response to the volume of, of submissions. Um, so the call itself was roughly reiterating what Jeremy and I have been talking about to this time largely about the flattening of hierarchies and the boosting of individual freedoms, the reduction of centralized controls. So something that we were looking for, ish, uh, for people to take critical takes on these other uh, things that run counter to this global discourse of digital education. So local practices surfacing uh, communities that we may or may not be aware of, relationships, roles, what have you. Even methods, methodologies as well. In fact, there's two people in the room who are submitting to this uh, special issue who did some methodological work, some really interesting stuff. Yes, but we can't evade the fact, um, and we shouldn't shy away from the fact that uh, the two editors for the special issue are two white males from, from the University of Edinburgh, a position of prestige, a position of privilege, and uh, this is not something we necessarily shied away from. Um, we stro strove, we moved towards inclusiveness by keeping the idea of what the issue was largely undefined. So the goal was largely to receive the input from the community through the calls uh, to guide us in, the, in drafting the special issue and to understand what it means to be surfaced and what it means to be backgrounded in these conversations around global digital education. Uh, we had to unpick our own biases and we're still in the process of doing that ourselves. I mean, this is something we have to be reflexive about and open about, and I think we have been for the most part, we've engaged. We did a presentation earlier this week at eLearning Africa, uh, an online conference promoting eLearning in Africa as well, and we had a conversation around this very special, uh, this very same, this very same, uh, these very same issues as well. We've learned from the experiences, we made adaptations to the call as a result. So the call has evolved over a course of time. I think we're second or third version of the call. So we've adapted it uh, based on what we've been learning as well. So this, is a, this has been a, a process for us, and we'll return to that as well at the end of the presentation. Yeah, and I, th I think a, a, an important part of that, of our unease at being editors of a special issue of this particular topic, um, it has prompted a, a lot of reflection on our part. Uh, and particularly around the role of the editor. I think that's something that we perhaps at the beginning of this process didn't 
perceive it to have the kind of significance that, um, that others thought of it. Um, but I think still we, 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 we would want to, to try and downplay that role. Um, so, so this slide is really about, about clarifying what we, we see the editor role is, uh, is being in this process. Obviously we write the call, so in a, in a way we're, we are defining the door through which people can enter to be published in this special issue. So there's a there's a um, a power dynamic there. There's a there's a a, a, a role of authority there that we're that we're playing. But I think we also um, were happy to be to have feedback on that from, from mm -hmm. members of the academic community, which which we did to to shape the call. And I think we're also committed to. Um, Seeing the special issue as a, as a as a collection of authors rather than something that has has direct uh, editorial control. I'm sure most people here will know something about that process. Um, uh, papers will be subject to to peer review, not from us, but from the academic community. And we hope that that that, that process is a, is a productive way of, of of helping the scholarship on. And um, and the NMT is a good venue for. For the authors to to shine, um, I think that certainly when I look at a, a special issue, I, I don't a general special issue. I don't necessarily look at who the editors are, but I, I think that I think that people do do that, and, and it's something for us to to reflect about it, 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 as our, our position in in doing the editing. Mm -hmm. The response itself. Um, it's a live action shot. I mean, that's, that's an actual shot of what Jeremy and I were trying to do to decipher what the calls were. But the response were, it was largely overwhelming. We expect a lot less than we got than we received. I think I don't know the exact number, but it was enough to fill probably six or seven special issues if you really thought they were all of a certain caliber. So it did split off into two separate, rather than reject outright, just strictly based on space. It was strictly becoming a space issue in its entirety and noticing the thematic elements that were emerging in all the different abstracts we uh, constructed a second uh, call and the second call and we noticed a departure in the way the two special issues were going the first the lmt one being more of a critical take on uh what the what the original call was about the critical take on digital education and unpicking some of the power dynamics involved in that the second one and the methodologies uh, attached to that as well the second one which we are now going to be publishing in uh, URDL is that it took a more specific local community of practice approach to uh, these communities. It was talking about communities in action, communities around a particular activity, and their use of digital technology, and the methodologies we can use to unpick some of those groups that are uh, largely unaccounted for. Uh, so they split off into two separate special issues, both to be released roughly about the same time, roughly about the same time, early next year. So this hopefully just gives you a flavor of some of the, the papers we've been promised and that we hope will be, we will be out in learning media and technology soon. Uh, papers that uh, look at refugee perspectives in online education, um, examining social media in, in South Africa, uh, and uh, issues of global local divides with health workers in Kenya, and in fact, that's what we're going to hear some more about in the in the second talk. Um, so this hopefully should should give you a, a, a flavour of the kind of diverse work that we're receiving. I should mention that I'm, I'm unfortunately, since we put these slides together, I think that um, 
I think that uh, here and there, digital education and the global media landscape is unfortunately not going to appear in the special issue. But it's one I want to mention because I think it takes a really uh, good critical take on the, the kind of work that we were trying to um, trying to encourage. And it's one that tries to look at a kind of marginalization in, in New York. So I think one of the ways that, um, that our call for paper was characterized was one that understood the marginalization that we were calling, calling for as, as directly referring to kind of global, global north and global south divisions. But I think what was really interesting and critical for me in, in, in that work that was promised was to try and surface the idea of marginalization within, within a, a kind of Western context and to, to trouble that as an as a easy binary. Unfortunately, I think that, that bit of work will probably be appearing somewhere else in, in the near future, but I hope it will. Yeah, and so the second one was, like I said, had taken a different departure. It sort of went down a more practitioner-based route and uh, was largely dealing with these communities of activity around a particular practice, whether it be health workers or whether it be different uh, teacher trainer preparation with mobile instant messaging, for example, there might be you know something similar to a WhatsApp group used to to uh, to, to manage field placements. And uh, so, over what, as I would say, we have about thirteen selected for that. And we have about twelve for. LMT that have made the cut out of, and we turned away from probably at least 40 more, something along those lines. Presentation. So earlier this week, we did the Emerge Africa conference. We presented about this special issue, uh, and then uh, potential authors in the special issues presented as well, some of the work they're doing. And of course, we have Jane talking in a second, very soon, about her work as well, part of the special issue uh, as well which I'm, I'm desperate to listen to, it sounds great. Now to return, going back to the development work for a second. So we, we took this long journey uh, in introducing how we came to the special issue. And we talked about the special issue itself, now returning to some of the work we were doing before. Uh, practices on the ground. So how might this research help? That the research that's emerging <coughs> from the special issues, how might it help uh, in these contexts, in the development context we were working before? How might it help some of those projects be formed in such a way that they can actually contribute meaningfully. Uh, I'm not saying they, they all aren't. I'm just saying there's a lot of misdirection, uh, waste of activity, waste of use, waste of cash, waste of resources in some of these projects. So how can this research help us identify these orchestrations of practices? How does the local, cultural, social, gender, technological, political, how do these all intersect in uh, either access or not, use or not? So how does it influence these global accounts of uh, digital education? How, identifying the power structures that exist therein and identifying certainly the barriers that exist for some who are meaning, trying to contribute to uh, or trying to join in in the digital education. So again, the Worldwide Fo uh, Web Foundation, returning again to the gender uh, focus, is the patriarchal systems of power may restrict women's access to technology directly or indirectly. This is uh, absolutely true in the context that I'm largely working in. Uh, this, these are not strictly technological issues. These are not strictly about access or use. There's a lot of other issues that underpin how people will in inherently access the technology alone and then the digital education that comes along with it. Uh, women are particularly burdened, as they are in, in, in every society everywhere, but in, in this context, it presents a particular burden that uh, creates a broader and broader gender digital divide. 
which is what this project was largely attempting to distill from the research and from the various projects that were successful or failed, uh, what were some of the key takeaways, the key findings that might, that the research that we're doing for the special issue might, um, might impact. So it was this project for USAID and MSTAR and FHI 360, all development organizations, was to take almost every project that we were aware of that had attempted to use ICT to increase women's access to different programs, not just education, but it could have been health, mobile money, mobile banking, any number of things along those lines. And to distill from those what we thought were the best practices that were emerging from these projects and how that can maybe link up to the research we're, we're hopefully stimulating with these special issues. So the digital divide is not this binary of strictly access or not. There's much more involved in that. It's the access and use is the lowest definition that is uh, acceptable to, to many. Uh, it's the access to ICTs and the use of ICTs, meaningful use of ICTs, however defined. So this regional disparities uh, are dramatic in terms of these gender digital divides. Nigeria, for example, 45% compared to 7% in Kenya. This is the percentage more men uh, uh, accessing ICTs than women. And there's a lack of gender disaggregated data involved. Now the data issue is significant for us, for all of us, because NGOs, up in, not all NGOs I should say, but largely the development weren't necessarily disaggregating that data as they were working on these projects in particular contexts, meaning it was a, a person or not. It wasn't necessarily broken down by male or female. It wasn't broken down by different roles or relationships within that community, which inherently rendered these women invisible according to some of the projects that we were, we were trying to work on. So part of the problem is on us, the onus is on us, and it's largely a data issue about who's counted and who's not. This is obviously changing. Oh, I hope it's changing. From my experience, it is changing a bit. So even when they do have the ICT, that they, often in these situations, they'll render the use of that ICT differently. And this will be influenced by any number of things. That's why we need these nuanced accounts of practice. So they use, likely use less sophisticated services such as mobile internet. The gap in the service and the internet increases as technologies get more sophisticated and expensive, which will eliminate people who cannot afford them, obviously. Mostly for voice calls, women use SMS, mobile money, and mobile internet much less than men. There's a, within this, there's also a breakdown of how women in, in certain contexts, specifically in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, might use uh, social media if and when they do get access to it. It's different. It's they, less of the broadcast, the broadcast SM, uh, social media such as Facebook, much more of the intimate uh, WhatsApp groups or something that's a little bit more intimate, uh, a little bit more secure and safe. And that has a lot to do with these three things, which seem to be the biggest barriers, at least for these projects. Uh, affordability, uh, the cost of internet connectivity, obviously. It's not, just the, the, it's not just the technology, it's the cost of the internet is, is very restrictive. And that restriction is felt much more, uh, much more pronounced for women, obviously, because their earning, earning potential is less in, in, in most societies. Uh, the availability of that, uh, women often are at home in these contexts and are working from home. And the coverage is much less uh, in terms of internet coverage, even from a cellular coverage. 
They're unable to travel for a better signal, unlike often the gatekeeper of the household or who might be the husband or the father. And the appetite, so there's concerns over security and harassment can deter women from using the ICT in these contexts alone. Now, does this work with higher education? Is this the same true with higher education? No, not necessarily. This might render differently with those who are attending universities in these particular contexts. But they are things that we need to be aware of. The gender norms themselves, uh, the women's access to education follows underlying gender inequalities, not surprisingly. What happens in tech is largely reflected in the larger society. Uh, social norms in many low-income countries determines women's ability to earn income, financial decisions, or be educated. Also, obviously, ICT access and use. And the men as the gatekeepers and households asking permission to use the mobile, to use the ICT that's shared across the household. That, all of these contribute to uh, a situation whereby women obviously are greatly disadvantaged in this access to ICTs and then the services that come as a result of that ICT, you know, digital education included. And for many, it's not considered safe to go to the Internet Cafe, which has been um, a development outcome for years and years. It's always, just go to the Internet Cafe. But, you know, come on. It's not safe for, for everybody to do that. So finding one, there was a need for, which is getting back to the call now, there's a need for a nuanced understanding of current levels of women's ICT access and use, including the social norms that go along with that, the sociocultural practices that go along with that, the restrictions and the barriers and the gatekeepers that influence this access and use. This was the biggest finding from this entire project, which is probably the most obvious finding too, which is we, we need more nuance in these, uh, these approaches. Something that counteracts some of these global uh, discourses around digital education, for example. We need more nuance in this approach. Finding two, we need data to identify opportunities and you need to uh, make sure you're counting everyone. You're counting. You surface people through counting. Make, making sure everybody is counted is a, uh, becomes a prerequisite for this sort of thing. Using other ICT platforms such as radio, I always point to that one because radio still has quite a bit of credibility, quite a bit of validity as a digital education ICT radio. It's, uh, it's used, it's the most common ICT op in, in many of these locations. In, in some cases, the only one. So that's how I see the development work feeding into the calls. Jeremy comes at it from a slightly different way, from, uh, from the critical digital education, the critical takes on digital education. I'm approaching it largely from these development spaces. So as a, as a, as a way of rounding up, we, we thought we would... Um present these as, as kind of hopes for the for the digital education scholarship community. They're certainly not things we think that our special issues will, will easily uh, solve. But what we would like to see, I think, uh, is more diverse scholarship published around this area. Michael and I both teach and research, as I'm sure many of you do, and I think one of the motivations for, for doing some of this work is, is sensing there's a, there's a lack of research, published research available for us to use, to give to students, to, to use in our work that, that provides alternative perspectives. And probably a lot of that is my own uh, inability to find it, but I think that's an issue as well. It should be surfaced in, in high-ranking journals, and I think although Learning Media and Technology is not an open access journal, and that's something we're uneasy about, um, it, I think there's still value in, in surfacing some of this work in a journal like that. Um, and in general, 
the, the wider community to, uh, to, to take this on. And I, I think we also want to um, talk about this, this kind of inclusion as something, that's, um, something that we, we need to pay persistent, persistent attention to. I think it would be dangerous to, to view the idea that we, we could get to a point where we can, where we can be in, in inclusive. I think what we need to, to have as a, a culture where we're always asking the question about the questions about who, who is being marginalized in this discourse, what voices aren't being heard. Um, I think that's the, a kind of productive culture that, that would be good to see in, in digital education. And I think the last one is probably a, a bit ambitious, but um, certainly I think the way that we started this conversation was to sort of pit the global ed tech hyperbolic media claims of, uh, of digital education against more nuanced practices from the ground. I think that's very difficult when it's much easier for somebody to, to, to gain media attention by suggesting they're going to uh, help people out by streaming video lectures than to actually publish difficult accounts of challenging challenging issue, issues of the ground that don't on the ground they don't provide um, easy solutions but I think that's this, that's something that we that we hope this can this work can contribute to that's it that's essentially it so we're just returning to the question which we can talk about I'm assuming a little bit in that uh, hour we have at the end for the for the discussion References, sources, and other alternatives to open source journals, if you if you prefer to go that route. I mean, these are all ones that would uh, would be open to the idea of a special issue around these issues. Uh, we've talked to them, I've talked to them all in some way or form. Uh, INASP is another great organization that works with uh, scholars uh, in development context uh, towards publishing and the mechanics of publishing and research and making sure they're up to speed on certain things. So they can publish in whatever journal they choose to to, to publish in a good organization that we've worked with for a long time. And that is that. <laughs>